Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks very much for tuning in here for the show. We're speaking on Wednesday, May 10th, 2023. On the program today, we're discussing mental health policy and the recently released mental health roadmap put forth by the New York City Council, led by Council Speaker Adrian Adams, and with legislation and leadership from several other council members, including my guest today. I'm joined here on the show by city council member Linda Lee, a Democrat who represents District 23 in Eastern Queens and chairs the council's mental health committee, technically named the Committee on Mental Health, Disabilities and Addiction. Council member Lee helped craft the council's mental health roadmap, sponsors key pieces of legislation that are part of that larger plan, which also requests state and federal action on the issue, as well as executive action from the mayoral administration, as well as city council legislation that is in the offing. She recently chaired a hearing on the several bills in the package and next week on May 15th, Councilmember Lee will co-chair a hearing on Mayor Eric Adams's executive budget proposal as it relates to mental health, addiction, and other services and challenges facing the city. There is a lot to dig into here. There are many pieces of this city council mental health roadmap, so we'll try to touch on a bunch of them here today and how it relates to other proposals things that were passed in the recently approved state budget, which includes a lot of health care, including mental health care policy. We've been covering a lot of that at Gotham Gazette. And so as I bring on Council Member Linda Lee here in a moment, please do find our reporting at GothamGazette.com. We've especially been focused on this key and controversial issue at the state level of the availability of hospital-based psychiatric beds. Governor Hochul has made this a major focus. There's key pieces in the new state budget that relate to this that we've been covering. And of course, at the city level, there's been a lot of coverage, including from us at Gotham Gazette, but not limited to us, of course, around Mayor Eric Adams's directives, which may or may not have really changed what's happening on the ground related to voluntary and involuntary removals of people from public spaces, including the subways, who seem to be having serious mental health challenges. This entire discussion, of course, occurs with the backdrop of the killing of Jordan Neely on the subway on May 1st, which is being examined by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. The investigation is ongoing. Jordan Neely seemingly having uh, significant mental health challenges for many years and including on the day he was killed, but many questions around how he was approached on that train, put into a chokehold, and killed by Daniel Penny. There is much more to unfold there, but let's talk about that and much more with City Council Member Linda Lee, again, a Democrat representing the 23rd District in Eastern Queens and chair of the City Council's Committee with Oversight of Mental Health. Council Member Lee, thank you for joining me. How are you today? Thank you. Thanks for having me. Good to so, <laughs> Great, great to have you back. Uh, we had you on the show with a couple of other council members uh, responsible for uh, oversight and, and legislative duties, chairs of the committees, uh, also on hospitals and health uh, way back early last year, which feels like ages ago when you were first uh, given those assignments and, and winning those assignments to win those uh, chairship positions. 
Great to have you back uh, to discuss this plan. So let's start with Jordan Neely. There are still things we clearly don't know. There's been a lot of, uh, there's video, there's some video of the incident. There's been eyewitness accounts, a lot of reporting, uh, but an investigation ongoing that will surely uncover more information. But Jordan Neely was was someone in immense need, uh, in distress, who has bounced around like so many others through the criminal justice system, through the mental health system. What does his story uh, appear to you to say about the city's mental health care system and approach to people with some of the most serious mental illnesses? Sure. Um, first of all, I just want to say that the incident that happened with Jordan Neely is it's really saddening and it's very unfortunate because, uh, again, we're seeing another incident that could have been prevented. And I do think that this highlights, um, you know, the years because uh, we're now starting to see the impact of the years of disinvestment into the mental health system across the city and state. And I think what this situation and what happened with him highlights is how um, how we have sort of failed to um, having supportive systems in place to make sure that folks like Jordan Neely have a place to go and that they're not caught in those kind of situations. And, you know, going back to the roadmap, I think um, it highlights four pillars or buckets, if you will, that actually would have addressed or hopes to address um, preventing future incidences like this happening. For example, I think the number one thing that we're hearing across the board is how there's a huge lack of mental health workforce. So when you're talking, for example, about these street outreach teams um, through Department of Homeless Services, through EMS, through Be Heard, all these programs that are supposed to be out there, the number one thing with those programs, as well as the nonprofit programs that are providing supportive services, is that there's a huge lack of uh, workforce in the mental health sector. So we try to address that in a, a few different ways, both encouraging, you know, or we're going to attempt to encourage folks to go into the mental health sector through scholarships. And on the other side, for those that are already in the field, how do we address loan forgiveness um, to help retain staff so that they don't leave this field? Um, and pay parity, COLAs for nonprofits, these are all things that we're really trying to push. Um, and then the second thing that really is um, instance, you know, that shows, um, you know, the failure is we're constantly having a lot of folks coming into the mental health system as a revolving door. And how do we prevent that, right? So I think a lot of that stems from two other um, pillars that are discussed in the roadmap, which is number one, breaking down the silos in city and government agencies. Because for example, Department of Homeless Services has one piece of the mental health continuum, Department of Health and Mental Hygiene has another, but how do we know that the handoff is happening? And then from there, out of, you know, in the, you know, once they leave inpatient, how do we make sure that the baton is being handed off to um, services that are in the community? and that they're actually plugged in for continued care. Um, so the so the silos in government and, you know, the need for this whole approach to this mental health crisis issue, whole government approach is, is something that we attempt to address. And then also just the preventative services. I cannot emphasize how important this is and where are the providers able to fill in the gaps and catch people where they may be falling through the cracks. And in instances like what we saw with Jordan Neely, I think that we need to make sure that the providers who are working on the ground to make sure that these incidences don't happen are coordinating with government and that they actually have the resources they need to be able to provide the services. Um, so what we're trying to do and what we don't want to see is 
this intersectionality that we see keep happening between the criminal justice system and people with mental health issues, which is the fourth pillar that we talk about in the roadmap. You know, a lot, if you look at the statistics, most most people that have mental health illness, illnesses or issues, it does not result in serious violence. I think there's also a lot of education that we need to have in the community around this perception that people who have mental illnesses are violent, because I don't think that's true at all. Um, I think that, you know, we need to really educate our communities on this and make sure that, um, you know, we're not putting people in Rikers because it has turned into a mental health institution in and of itself, where there's a high percentage of folks that are at Rikers that really need services versus being in, in jail. And so how do we, but again, it goes back to the services in the community, making sure that we have the workforce available, making sure that we are trying to break down these government silos so that we can get people into services. There's Clearly, uh, you know, something of a tension in these situations where, um, you know, we know we have this this history of what most people would agree with over institutionalization and then the deinstitutionalization movement taking hold, uh, you know, in the 70s and and beyond Um, some people coming around to say that might have gone a little too far and we need to really revisit the capacity for mandatory involuntary uh inpatient treatment and there's questions around you know state-run psychiatric institutions and then as i got at in the introduction also the question of regular sort of hospital-based psychiatric units and beds and care and what those plans look like court mandates a whole set of policies there what it seems like you're getting at with the council is trying to create a a robust system that makes involuntary commitment, um, you know, as little used as possible as part of that. Can you speak a little bit about that tension, though? Because, you know, there's reporting on, again, on on Jordan Neely's situation, and we we don't need to only obviously use his example, but it's emblematic of of many others, um, you know, that he was uh, in a program, left it, and sort of in the wind. And, you know, as you said, there's huge questions about the sort of continuum of care here and the handoff. So say a little bit about how you're thinking about how the council's thinking about those that that sometimes tension between do we do we really how do we get that robust enough system that involuntary commitment is as little used as possible while making sure that people are safe themselves and not a danger to others as well? Sure. Um, it's it's interesting you brought that up because in my district actually is Creedmoor, which was that huge, large facility, mental health institution that has been abandoned for years. And it's 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 crazy because I was just there the other day doing a site visit because there are still some providers that are on site there, but most of the buildings are abandoned and you walk around and you look at what used to be there. And, you know, I don't think that that was it. However, um, you know, I think We attempt to address that. I know that the speaker has a housing plan, and I think part of what needs to be in there also, which is in there is, you know, and I've spoken to the commissioner at OMH about this, is the need for more supportive housing. Because one of the things we know is that housing is one of the main social determinants of health. And so sometimes even more so than finding a job or finding employment, if someone is not housed or does not have stable housing, that really impacts their ability to um, stabilize other aspects of their life, right? And so if we can actually dedicate 
more um, supportive housing for the city to address some of these issues. I think that number one would be helpful. The second thing is that um, I know at the state, you know, the the governor has really, and this is needed, is, is she's really sort of, um, you know, pushed to bring back the psychiatric beds, as you mentioned, that were offline because of COVID. And they're not fully back yet in terms of the numbers that it was pre-COVID. Um, and, and to be honest, I think that there are more beds that we need in, in more friendly settings. Even, you know, um, Councilmember Althea Stevens and I were talking about the need that we need more beds for youth specifically, right? Because there are certain needs that run, runaway homeless youth have that are very different from what adults go through and they don't necessarily wanna be in the same spaces. And so how do we make sure that we're accommodating for, for those different populations? But, you know, I think the first thing is, at least on the inpatient side, to get the beds back up and running. I think that's that's really an important piece. But but more than that, I think, aside from the beds, how do we help them with the transition between um, that and finding stabilized housing and then plugging them into these um, other supportive services that are needed? Um, yeah, as so, you mentioned. Yeah. yeah, no. Say, so say a little bit more about that continuum of care and ensuring that people don't fall through the cracks. What have you seen as the major problems there? And what does the council roadmap you know, specifically have to plug those gaps to ensure that people aren't leaving an inpatient setting and then really not being um, mm -hmm. being treated and not being, you know, checked in on, not uh, being, you know, for lack of a better word, sort of tracked. Yeah. And, and um, I think one of the, for the first time, actually, one of the things that we try to do is, you know, because the handoff is, the handoff is one issue. I think the lack of a streamlined database is another issue because we can't track someone across different city agencies. Um, and so I know that that's like a huge, huge lift, right. To create some sort of database that doesn't violate HIPAA laws, um, but also can track someone through the system so that if let's just say I'm with DHS and I find that there's someone in our homeless shelter who seems to have been in the system previously, right? I know that they have their own ways of tracking that within DHS, but if they end up somehow in a DOHMH program or in a hospital setting, how are folks in the hospital able to track that person and, and provide them with services? But I, I think aside from that, one of the things that the roadmap does, which I haven't touched upon, is we're focusing for the very first time on peer support and family support services. So it's also a notion that it's not just the individual themselves, but it's the support services around them, right? And what does that look like? So, you know, I know that for for evidence, there's a lot of evidence-based out there that evidence-based, um, you know, research out there that shows how if a family member or a friend or someone in their community is part of their recovery and part of their support system and is involved in the recovery process, then it's much more likely that they, their recovery will be successful. Um, and, you know, that's talking about anyone that has mental health issues, substance use issues, it, it sort of reaches across a broad spectrum. Um, but these are proven methods that actually do work. And so when you look at other programs, let's just say like the clubhouse model or even um, NAMI New York City Metro, which I used to be on the board of, you look at the programs that they have and they may not want to go into a shelter, but you know what? They may want to walk into a clubhouse during the day and actually get services there and training and actually um, just you know, be part of the programs that they have that are running in the clubhouse because um, it is a much friendlier setting and model 
um, that deals with people with severe mental illness, but in a way that sort of meets them where they are. Um, so I think as long as we continue to, you know, it's going to be crucial for us to continue to um, expand a lot of those programs. I know the mayor himself has mentioned that he wants to expand, expand the clubhouse model, as well as other preventative service models. But like you said, I think the goal here is to really resource up a lot of these programs that already exist so that we don't end up in a situation where we have to remove someone involuntarily. I think that would be the last, 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 last resort that we would want to see. Hmm. Uh, coming back to some of what you said in a moment, but um, just on the subject, you know, we are obviously in city budget season. A new city budget is due by July 1st. Uh, which is the start of the new city fiscal year. We now have a state budget a month late, but now have it. So that gives the city a lot more certainty on a number of funding issues. So you are now beginning executive budget hearings in the council uh, have started this week. And as I said, you'll be co-chairing one of those hearings next week. So um, you know, folks can look for that hearing and coverage of that hearing afterward to uh, follow up on this discussion and others happening. Um, on budgeting, a key theme, as you just mentioned, of this city council mental health roadmap is sort of enhancing things that are already ongoing or making sure there's staffing or more funding for things that are, are already in place with a number of other expansions and tweaks and changes. Um, do you have a general sense of what this roadmap sort of adds in terms of uh, funding request and, and what the council's pursuing? Do you know roughly how much additional funding for the pillars of this mental health roadmap would add to the next city budget? Mm -hmm. um, first, just to really briefly comment on the state budget that came out, because Please. I know that the state budget has a lot of investments into the mental health system, but if you notice, it's a lot more on the capital side. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yes, the, the actual physical brick and mortar, bringing beds online, um, expanding the inpatient psychiatric beds, and also outpatient um, capital uh, programs as well, um, in terms of creating um, comprehensive psychiatric emergency programs and you know, crisis um, intervention centers more through the hospitals as well. So there's a lot of focus on the capital side on the state budget. Um, and I think where I see the council investing more is really in the programs and also trying to um, invest more into getting people into the workforce and having them stay there. Because again, we, we, we have been meeting with advocates continuously on the ground who are doing this work. And the number one thing that keeps getting brought up is they cannot do this without more workforce and also an increase in the, the COLAs, the cost of living adjustments that they get through their contracts and pay parity. So a lot of the issues are that they can't keep people in the sector and in the field because, you know, the pay is not at a level that is competitive with other fields that are out there. And so you know, how do we invest in the workforce is, is going to be a big question. Um, we haven't solidified any numbers yet, but I think that's going to be a focus for sure. And then also really the, the providing more resources for the prevention services in the community, the providers that are already doing the work, and how do we um, help them with their contracts so that they're not bleeding money to actually deliver services that are very necessary. And they oftentimes are the ones that are the gap fillers in the, in the community. There's an interesting discussion at play here that you're getting at some, um, and and that is is something of a debate at the state level, at the city level, 
Uh, I know I, I had Assemblymember Ron Kim of Queens on the show a while back, and, and this is a major theme for him, which is, uh, again, something of this question or tension between building up the public sector capacity versus enhancing resources that the public sector is hiring nonprofits to execute. How does that come into play here? Are there ways in which the city department of health, the uh, health and hospital system, the way that health and hospitals runs uh, the mental health and other healthcare systems on Rikers Island and city jails, are there ways that this plan beefs up the public sector capacity, or is this much more focused on what you're getting at, which is more sort of nonprofit and community-based providers? I mean, if you look at it, I think, you know, the, I think it's, it, it, it has to be both, right? But I think for me, what I've seen, at least working on the nonprofit sector side, is that the groups that are providing the services on the ground are constantly and largely under-resourced and have to fundraise and do all these extra things to just meet their bottom line. Um, and one thing I will say to that point is that I think there's a place for each of those things, meaning we need the inpatient, we need the city agencies to do their role and play their role. But at the same time, there's a limit to what they're going to be able to do. And what I mean by that is, if you think about Queens, for example, we're the most diverse county in the entire nation. We have, I think, over 190 languages spoken and countries represented here. And so when you think about that, um, me as an immigrant, I'm not necessarily going to go to a state or government or city agency, but I am going to go to my local church and I am going to talk to my pastor and say, listen, I'm experiencing some, you know, you know, they, I may go to my faith based leaders or people in the community to talk about issues that I'm going through, which may result in, you know, plugging someone in. So I guess I guess what I'm getting at is that I think it has to be an and all approach, not an or or either, because, you know, there are certain places where government is not going to be able to reach. There's a lot of language issues. There's a lot of cultural issues and nuances there that they're not going to be able to to sort of factor and reach into the communities with. But that's where I think that, you know, nonprofits and agencies on the ground that are working with those communities can be working hand in hand and almost an extension of what the government is trying to do. Um, and that's what we saw. And that's what I saw for years working on the ground is that we worked very hand, very much hand in hand with our government agencies to say, hey, this is what we're seeing on the ground. These are things that you guys need to pay attention to and maybe shift some of your legislation and policies to better meet the needs of the community. And then also from their resources that they share with us, we would partner all the time because the city and state are able to do a lot more than we can. Um, and then so where does that partnership happen? And, um, you know, I think I think there's a need for both. There's um, there's a lot in this roadmap and we're not going to get to it all. I encourage folks to look at it. The council website, actually, that that includes it is very user friendly, even for lay people. There's some you know complicated terminology and some things you know that relate to city budgeting, but there, it's a very nice layout of how it's broken out into its four main pillars, and then the various city actions versus federal and state actions, and sort of nicely sort of bullet point and number listed uh, brief summaries of these things. So people should take a look if they're interested, of course, in more on this, um, because we're not going to get into every single specific. There's a whole city legislative package. There's 
uh, bills that would relate to, to city legislation and requiring city government to do certain things. And then there's resolutions, which are basically, you know, formal asks of the state and federal governments to do many other things. So there's a lot in here, including things related to education, uh, public reporting on things that are happening. There's crisis respite centers. There's this idea of uh, clubhouse style community centers, uh, supportive housing that we, we've mentioned. So there's, there's a lot here. Um, and again, before I ask you my next question, just to uh, reiterate for people, you got at this a bit, but the four key pillars here are prevention and supportive services, the mental health workforce shortage, the intersection between mental health and the criminal justice system, and uh, public awareness, education, interagency, communication, coordination. Those are the, the four big pillars here and a lot of actions underneath. Let's let's talk a little bit about uh, a little bit more about the, um, the the physical locations here that you're looking to expand, open up. Um, there's some legislation around uh, expanding the number of crisis respite centers. Then there's legislation around uh, this clubhouse style community centers. Um, maybe you can explain a little bit the the difference there. This also though gets back to this question around voluntary and involuntary. And so so if you could say a little bit about sort of the vision here in this plan around opening up more of these centers, some of this coincides, as you mentioned, very much with the Adams administration's plans that are out there. The city health commissioner comes uh, from a place that was uh, running these clubhouse model uh, places and services. Um, but also, once you have more of these centers and, and you're encouraging people to use them, you're also, again, coming back to this question of how do people get there, especially people who are in real deep crisis. Um, so say a little bit about the, the vision for more physical locations to for people to go to or people to be brought to and what the vision at least is on how they get there if they're not just saying, I need help. And I need to walk myself here or take the bus or train here and, and get there and get and get to help. Mm -hmm. um, so the, you, you actually brought up a good point, which the crisis respite center. So at the last hearing that we had, um, I didn't realize how few beds there were. I think across the entire city, there's only 50 beds in the crisis respite centers that they have. And I believe right now there's a total of nine crisis respite centers. We thought, I mean, online it says they have four, but I think it, through the state and city, there's about nine sites across the city, which totals to 50 beds, which in my opinion is not enough. And these are really meant for short-term stays. And I think there's even a debate right now in terms of what the appropriate length of stay is, because I think some of them were originally seven days. I think now it's up to um, 28 or it could be even more days. Um, don't quote me on that. I have to look at the numbers again. But mm -hmm. I think I think there's an attempt to also see what we can do to um, have more appropriate length of stays in the Christ respite centers, because seven days is definitely not long enough to figure out where they're going to go next and to plug them into something. And the paperwork itself takes so long. So I, I, I think we're trying to see um, and look at you know, how do we expand the beds that we have in the respite centers? Because they are proven to be very um, helpful for just addressing the immediate need. And then from there, I think it's really looking at 
you know, and it's, it really is a case by case situation because everyone's diagnoses and needs are very different. And so from there, it's looking at, okay, what programs are out there that we can plug them into and what would the next steps be? Um, but, you know, that, that in and of itself is really something that um, needs to be looked at. And the question always is, where do we put them? Where do we find the locations? Um, and I know that some of the groups that are running these respite centers are constantly looking for new places um, and locations. And, you know, that's something that we need to think through. And also you kind of offhandedly mentioned transportation, but that is a real factor. For example, my district is a transit desert, so we don't have any subways, Long Island railroads, it's really just cars and buses. And so when we're thinking through where to fo place folks, um, it's not really something that people factor in, but you know, is it accessible to public transit? Are they able to, um, and these are just not respite centers now that I'm talking about, but in general, um, just supportive services, you know, are they able to um, connect with other programs in the area, connect with other community centers, resources that they may need? Um, you know, so that's something that uh, we need to think through. The clubhouse models also, which I know um, the mayor uh, has mentioned, and also the commissioner comes from that world as well, um, is also um, something that they're looking to expand. Um, and I think that some of the groups on the ground who are running some of the clubhouses have expressed interest in wanting to expand and may have future locations. And so those are all things that we need to think through because that's actually a really great place that's more um, in an outpatient setting, it's folks with severe mental illness. Um, you know, it addresses some of the ongoing needs that they may have, and it's more long-term. So there's definitely places like the respite centers that are more short-term, but then there's also a need to plug folks after that into more long-term sustainable programs. In this package, as, as often happens with the city council trying to provide sort of more directive and more oversight to the mayoral administration that implements things, um, there's a bunch of bills, including some of your own, related to um, reporting requirements. And this is a form, obviously, of providing more information, but it's also a form of real attempts, at least on at one step of accountability. Um, so, so there's obviously different pieces of this, but if taking taking even what we have today. But also, if you were to get this whole roadmap passed, funded, and implemented, say a little bit about the accountability piece, the oversight piece. This is obviously a big part of your role as a city council member and chair of this committee because, you know, it, it strikes me covering city government for the last decade that there are these hearings that often happen that uh, officials from the mayoral administration are questioned about lacking in implementation or mediocre execution, let's say, or gaps in the programs that are being provided. And there's not always a lot of discernible improvement that comes out of this. Say mm -hmm. a little bit about, you know, instituting some more reporting requirements, oversight, accountability, how you're thinking about this, because as you know, even before you came into government uh, as an elected official a year and a half ago, there was a lot of focus on these issues under the de Blasio administration. There was the Thrive NYC program that, uh, you know, had lots of flaws and challenges and, you know, was was also a, became a punching bag of sorts. Um, but but a lot of these discussions have been happening. Mayor Adams comes in, is trying to fix the problems 
add new things in. Now the council is here as well, including pushing more on some of the education, the reporting, the publicly available information. So say a little bit about how you're thinking about accountability and oversight and the question of, as we sit here on May 10th, how do we how do we push progress ahead at a at a faster pace than it's been occurring? That's a good question. Um, you know, that's why I think the reporting bills are are helpful because I'm a huge fan of data. I love data, not because I'm great at numbers. I, I actually, <laughs> but but it's because the numbers tell you a story. The data tells you a story of what's happening, right? And it can't always be in real time, unfortunately. But I think it just helps us to see a pattern see what's happening on the ground, and then course correct if we need to, right? And I think that's really what this is meant to be. It's not It's not a gotcha kind of thing. At least that's not how I'm thinking of it. But it's really, how do we collect data in a way that helps us to better inform ourselves of what we need to fix and which direction we need to go in, right? So if we have numbers that show um, that, for example, because I have the bill um you know, around creating a database or reporting bill, sorry, rather, um, on the involuntary commitments. So what I would like to see is, you know, where are these folks coming from? Why are they being in, you know, committed involuntarily? And then are there ways that we can seek to lower those numbers? And how are we going to lower those numbers based on what we're seeing from that report? So it, it really is meant to give us a lot of information to, I think, in my opinion, um, course correct and improve some of the systems that we see on the ground. Um, because I, I think without those numbers and without that data, it's going to be really hard for us to just base decisions off nothing, right? And and it is, yes, a part of it is accountability, but I think more importantly, it's really to help us um, figure out what's working and what's not. Um. Let's talk about uh, workforce a little bit more, and we only have a few more minutes together here. And thank you for the time, uh, City Council Member Linda Lee. Um, on the workforce issue, that seems to be a big challenge. This again, this is part of uh, you got it. Uh, the new investments from the state. Uh, we have an article about that at Gotham Gazette that lays out the governor and state legislator devo legislature devoting about a billion new dollars. Um, to various aspects of mental health, and some of that is around workforce. Um, a, a major limiting factor here, seemingly besides some political will and funding and key elements of execution, is the availability of, of necessary uh, clinical support staff. Uh, there's, there's shortages across the state and beyond. Are the workforce provisions here enough to ensure adequate staffing in any sort of short to medium term? How do we, you know, you can have all the, as we've seen across city government here with some of the personnel vacancy issues, you can have lots of programs and lots of funding, but if you don't have the people to execute. So what can you say about the specifics of some of the workforce provisions and, and whether you think there's some sort of reasonable forecast for when they might start to ensure adequate staffing? Sure. Um, so there's a lot of factors into this, not all of which are going to be overnight solutions. Um, that's for sure. And I think we have to look at this from a multi-pronged perspective and tackle it in multiple ways. Um, so in the more immediate sort of longer, you know, medium longer term is is the is what the mental health roadmap addresses, which is the the you know the attempt to get people into the workforce 
by providing scholarship opportunities and even looking at, okay, is there a second language or a language capacity in addition to that where, you know, it would be helpful to get these folks into the pipeline. Um, and, and, you know, also on the other side is really how do we retain talent and staff because we are losing a lot of folks in the sector to private practice um, and other areas where they can quite honestly make a better um, living, you know, because it is becoming more expensive, more and more expensive to live in the city. So I think, um, you know, loan forgiveness, um, how do we address that and make sure that they at least have some burden off of their shoulders in terms of um, debt that they owe? Um, but also, I think some something that we're looking at, which is also another one of the bills that I have on the state side, is it's calling on the state to um, the state legislature um, on the interstate medical licensure compact, which, you know, for example, New York State has a pretty rigorous licensing, um, you know, uh, regulation and process when it comes to mental health professionals, you know, and rightfully so. I think this is something that, you know, we want to make sure that we're giving um, you know, that people have the training that they need in order to handle these situations. However, I think, you know, the question becomes how do we sort of streamline it and also bring other people into the mix? And so what this resolution would do is actually allow folks that have mental health licenses from other states to be able to come to New York and use that license to practice and not have to get a whole new license specifically for New York State. And so I think what we're asking is, is can we increase the workforce pool by actually allowing these folks from out of state to come. And we see that um, being tremendously helpful when it comes to telehealth. Um, and I think what COVID had taught us is how telehealth really has become such um, an important piece of people receiving care and continual care. And so um, that's something that we've been attempting to address through this uh, resolution is how do we also increase the workforce and the numbers of folks we have, and maybe even have them come here and incentivize them to come and work in New York. So those are all sort of things that we're trying to tackle and deal with um, that hopefully will help to address the workforce crisis. But again, I think, as I mentioned earlier, pay parity is super important and key, making sure that we're paying people what they're worth um, because it's very easy to get burnt out. Um, a lot of these tasks, for example, a lot of mental health um, professionals that graduate with a master's degree, for example, are entering the workforce with still salaries of maybe 55000 60000 a year. Um, and given the number of cases that they have, as well as the stress of the work that they're doing, um, they should be getting higher salaries than that. Is that perhaps the biggest area of divergence or potential divergence with the mayor and the Adams administration in terms of funding levels. That's obviously always, you know, negotiations between the city council and the mayor about what to fund and especially about things related to pay parity, public sector uh, funded, at least, you know, workforce versus private uh, questions around funding for community-based organizations and so forth. Would you say that's the biggest area that needs to be worked out here or, and or what else is sort of the key tension points with the mayoral administration? Is it the focus on involuntary removals? Where are the where are the tension points seemingly? Because as I read your mental health roadmap, it does seem like it's a lot of of similar thinking to the sort of broad scope of things the mayor and his team have put out. You look to enhance a number of things, add to things as we've discussed. But where are the points of divergence? Yeah, I think, um, I don't know if I'd say divergence per se, because I know that the mayor's administration seems to also put an emphasis on the need for, you know, um, 
paying a lot of the mental professionals, for example, what they're worth. I know that he last year came out with that million dollar investment into the mental health workforce. Um, but that specifically, I think, was geared towards uh, mental health professionals working in the hospital system. And so that's where we wanted to attempt to also add the nonprofit providers and that sector into the mix, because they're also a huge piece of this puzzle um, in terms of providing services in the community. And so it's really, um, you know, looking at how can it complement, I guess. And so we, you know, we're, I, I'm hoping that because we know that that's something that the administration sees as being important, that we can sort of push them when it comes to the budget season on that. But, you know, we're hopeful that, you know, I, I, I have no doubt that they see the importance of for sure. And, you know, uh, Deputy Mayor um, Ann Williams-Ison has been amazing. And I think she's actually done a lot to address some of the issues that we um, highlighted in the roadmap as well in terms of the intergovernmental agency communications. Um, and so I'm hoping that they actually, you know, it seems like from my conversations with them, it's been like, how do we work together to tackle a lot of these issues? And so hopefully that'll, um, you know, be reflected when it comes to the budget season. <laughs> So, you know, most prominently, of course, are issues like what we saw with Jordan Neely, other issues and tragedies around, you know, police response to people in mental health distress um, that turned deadly when police officers uh, kill people who may or may not be threatening. Um, but there's, you know, major challenges in addressing those calls, uh, questions around who should be going to the, some of those calls tragedies related to people in mental health distress who who kill uh, people standing on a subway platform, a, a whole variety of the, the most high profile, tragic, violent incidents. There's a lot in this plan, of course, and the mayor's mental health plan and former administrations that deal with the whole continuum, including counselors in schools and all sorts of things. So there's, again, there's many things we're not getting to here. We are focusing a lot on sort of some of the discussion around the most serious mental illness and services around inpatient treatment and the, and discharge plans and some, and I wanna come back mm -hmm. to that with a final question in a minute. Um, let me let me ask you one more about the mayor, and I should note for people listening in an unfortunate uh, sort of last minute scheduling issue, we're recording this episode basically as the mayor is giving remarks about the death of Jordan Neely. So we, we don't know exactly what he's saying on that uh, and, and, and how it relates to, you know, his thoughts and plans on mental health treatment. And if he's saying anything else um, about how New Yorkers more broadly should react to people who are in mental health uh, distress in public spaces um, and whether he's, you know, taken any further comments to sort of um, condemn any actions on the subway that occurred that day by Daniel Panny and others. Um, so we don't, we don't know that as we're talking here, but let me ask you more broadly related to that incident and others is the, are there ways that the mayor has talked about issues of serious mental health that are problematic to you? Do you agree with some like public advocate, Jamani Williams and others who have said, he, you know, he, he'd like to hear the mayor uh, talk about this, you know, much less as sort of very tied into a sort of dangerous public safety issue. Any, anything that's come to light, especially through this incident that you've been thinking about, about how the mayor has approached these issues and talked about people who are suffering from serious mental illness? I think, um, you know, I think the mayor, one thing that, um, you know, he has definitely shown is that, you know, this is an issue that 
he knows needs to be addressed and that um, we need to actually put more resources behind. In terms of the actual approach and tactics, um, I think that's where we can continue to have conversations with the administration because I, I think what we're seeing more and more also is how the NYPD and the police are becoming almost like a catch-all solution and that their portfolio in terms of what they're responding to is becoming more and more broad. So there are, for example, things that I don't think that the NYPD needs to be part of. However, um, you know, that's also largely dependent on things like, you know, the first responders who receive the 911 calls and are they properly addressing, you know, or diverting calls to the appropriate places that need that they need to go. Um, but, you know, there are definitely instances where I think it would be helpful to have a mental health professional along with someone from NYPD at situations, for example, DV situations statistically are known to be um, very dangerous and unpredictable. And so, domestic but, violence. but yeah, domestic violence, I'm sorry. So, so in those instances, for example, having a mental health professional there, but maybe having an NYPD officer um, sort of behind them and making sure that the mental health professional is there front and center to help de-escalate the situation and only if necessary, right, have um, the police officers respond. But, you know, I think I think there's, um, for example, even the idea that I was talking to with one of the advocates is maybe we need to actually have more social workers within the NYPD as well, right, who can sort of be within the department and help address some of those issues when they respond so that there's actual professional um, mental health approaches that are given at, at that time. And maybe they don't have to be dressed in officer clothes because that also is intimidating to a lot of folks when they're dressed in that manner. But, you know, can we have officers in plain clothes that have actual mental health degrees and professional backgrounds that actually go out with the officers? And so I think there's a lot of creative things that we also can look at that are not right now being explored that hopefully we can look to as possible solutions in the future. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of um, divergence, I mean, I think I think perhaps the approaches and tactics are where we need to have more conversations on things. But, you know, the attention is definitely there in terms of the need for this, um, you know, for mental health to have more resources and be addressed. Okay. We're going to leave it there. We got to a lot in, in a good amount of time together. Appreciate all the time. City Council Member Linda Lee is a Democrat representing the 23rd City Council District in Queens and chair of the City Council's Committee on Mental Health, Disabilities, and Addiction. Uh, I encourage folks, again, to look up the Council Mental Health Roadmap on the City Council site to look at the many specific prongs of the plan. We we got into a number of them, but there's there's a lot more to it, and it is a readable format. As I mentioned, uh, just as as we say goodbye, you're you are going to be chairing yet another hearing related to these matters mm -hmm. on the executive budget. Is there one thing uh, on your mind right now that you're going to be looking to dig in on on the numbers in that in that executive budget plan for the mayor at that hearing next week? Anything that sort of uh, popped up at some of these other hearings or as part of the council mental health roadmap that you haven't gotten answers that relate to the mayor's spending plans and where you want to push anything to flag for people ahead of that hearing? Sure. I mean, I think in a time of mental health crisis, we're definitely going to be asking about PEGS, the resources, a lot of the cuts that they're planning and how that's going to impact services on the ground um, and really trying to get better numbers um, in terms of, you know, what can be done to address a lot of the issues that we're seeing, because we all know that this is it should be a priority. Um, we don't want any more preventable situations that, you know, are happening that could have been elsewhere um, addressed. And so I think we need to really talk through and look at the numbers and see where we can up resource a lot of these programs. So 
And again, that gets back to the the personnel issue again uh, yeah. about whether agencies are um, are figuring out ways to to hire and retain uh, key staff. So uh, yeah. a lot more to look at there. Uh, City Council Member Linda Lee, thank you very much for the time. We'll check in down the road. Be well. Thank you so much. 